following is a Sunday sermon from Hope Presbyterian Church of New Braunfels, a community of people gathered to connect to God, to each other, and to their neighbors. For more information, visit www.hopenb.com. I'm going to be reading from Nehemiah chapter 5 today, so if you have your Bibles, please open them, and we'll be starting in verses, verse 1 through 13. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brother and our children as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, You are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But, even, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interests. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, and wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of our God stands forever. Today our theme is going to be looking at injustice among God's people that requires confrontation and repentance from God's people. We're going to look first at the outcry against injustice. We're going to look at the response of Nehemiah to injustice. We're going to look at the root behind injustice and the repentance that we should display from injustice. So let's first look at the outcry against injustice. Look at verse 1. Now, we're going to stop there. You might think, wow, this is going to last a long time if we only get one word and then stop, right? But I want us to set up the context because it's important for us to remember what's going on. Nehemiah is is building the wall, right? He's leading the people to restore Jerusalem back to some semblance of, of strength and security. But this story interrupts that greater story of Nehemiah, right? It breaks in. And if you haven't been here the past few weeks, we'll see that God's people have returned to do God's work in God's city. They're rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. The reason they had to do that is because 150 years prior to Nehemiah and him coming to to Jerusalem, the nation of Judah 
have been taken captive by the empire of Babylon. The city of Jerusalem had been burned. The temple had been ransacked and destroyed, and the walls had been torn down. Many of the people were then taken into captivity into Babylon. But the reality was it wasn't Babylon doing this. It wasn't the king of Babylon doing this. No, it was God who sent them into exile because of their persistent rejection of him as their Lord, because of their disobedience to his law and his covenant, because of their idolatry and following the nations around them. But God in his mercy did not leave them in exile. He decreed that he would return them from this exile, that it would be temporary, and he would bring them back to this land once again. So in 539, the Persian Empire conquered the Babylonians, and Cyrus the Great, he actually declared that the Jews could return to their homeland, that they could restore Jerusalem. And so they, they went back. Zerubbabel, we, re, we remember in the story of Ezra, he, he begins this process by rebuilding the temple. He leads the people back there to, to start the true worship of God again. But now, between the time of Zerubbabel and, and Nehemiah, a hundred years have passed. And when Nehemiah hears, he's, he's, Nehemiah is just a, he's a cupbearer. He works for the king of Persia. He's a cupbearer for him. But he hears that Jerusalem is still desolate, that it still lies in ruin, and that the walls are still broken down. And when he hears that, he's moved to prayer. He turns to God for help. And then he goes to the king, and he requests that he could go back, and he can rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And the king grants his request. He sends him back. So it's in that context, right, that, Je that Nehemiah is trying to rebuild Jerusalem, reestablish its walls, that there's this outcry that arises from the people. There was a great outcry of the people and their wives. This this great outcry is a very serious issue. The word is used in times of oppression. It's used in life-threatening situations. We actually, we saw it today in our passage in Exodus chapter 3. God said, I have heard their cry because of their taskmaster. I know their suffering, and the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen their oppression. So when God saw his people in their original captivity in Egypt, he heard their cry. They were crying out to him because they were in a terrible situation. They were being oppressed. But then we see it in a, in a more immediate situation, right? In Exodus 14, Pharaoh and his army have trapped the people of Israel against the Red Sea, and they think they're going to die. And so they cry out to God again because they feared greatly. They're not just complaining when they come to Nehemiah here, right? They're terrified. They think their lives are at stake. They think there's no hope, but they cry out to him because it's a matter of life and death. They're crying out for help. They're crying out for protection because they're experiencing injustice. Injustice is when people are not treated as they deserve. It's when their rights under the law have been taken away, when their dignity as humans are not, is not being recognized. And this oppression, this injustice that they're experiencing is, is so severe that even the wives come out, right? The whole assembly comes out and cries out to Nehemiah. But their, cry, their outcry isn't what you'd expect. In chapter 4, Derek told us about how there was an external threat to the people of Israel, right? There were, there were enemies that were trying to prevent them from rebuilding the walls. But now the outcry 
is because of a threat within the people of God. They were being oppressed by their fellow Jews. And this injustice hinders the work of the walls. This is kind of neat. If you look at chapter 5, nothing happens on the wall. Not a single brick is laid. Not a single stone is cut and placed. No beams are hoisted and set into place. The work stops. In chapter 4, there were armies threatening them. Sambalot and Tobias were gathering a threat against Jerusalem. And the people had to take a, a shovel in one hand and a sword or spear in the other hand because of the threat. But they didn't stop working. But now, with this internal threat, they have to stop working. They stop the work of, on the wall because injustice among God's people hinders the work of God's people. We see this economic injustice that's taking place, this oppressive poverty that they're experiencing. We see like three snapshots of it, right? There's probably more going on. There's probably greater things that could be said, but we see these three snapshots of the situation. Look first at verse 2. For there, for there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we might eat and keep alive. Each of the groups that we look at, they're introduced by this phrase, there were those who said, right? So you can see it pretty clearly in the text. But these are day laborers. These are people who are you are getting paid for their work, and then they have to go buy the food that they can eat. They have no money, no reserves, no way to take care of themselves other than the work that they are doing that day. But they simply are asking for grain because they need food. They're in a dire situation where there's not enough for them to eat. They are starving, and their kids are starving. They're desperate. And so they cry out to Nehemiah. But then we see another group in verse 3. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. This second group consists of small business owners, right? Small landowners. They used to own land and own fields and vineyards and have houses. But this economic situation is so bad that trade has been disrupted. There's no way to bring in grain and the normal ways that money is made is, is not working, right? It's been disrupted. And on top of this, there's this famine that's in place. And it's been going on for a while. And so these landowners, they've had to mortgage their property. They've had to sell it to the wealthy Jewish nobles and officials who are in the area in order just to buy grain so they can survive. Buy grain for them to eat and buy grain hoping that maybe next year the famine will subside. They had hoped that this previous crop would be enough, that they would be able to buy back their land, that they would be able to pay off their mortgages. But the famine continues. The harvest has yet again been a disappointment. They can't pay the interest they owe, so there's no way they can pay off the loan. And they know that they're going to lose everything. Everything they've worked for, they will be destitute. They're going to be in the same place as these day laborers, right, where they're just begging for bread. And so they bring their, their cries to Nehemiah as well. Now look at verses 4 through 5. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money from the king's tax on our fields and on our vineyards, and now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers and our children as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. Notice this group, they don't come to Nehemiah and say, hey, could you do something? You, you were friends with the king. You might see if you could 
release those taxes from us a little bit. No, they recognized the words that uh, Benjamin Franklin would later said, right, say that in this world there's nothing that's for certain except death and taxes. So they realized they're going to have to pay these taxes to the Persian king, but they're, they're, they're conquered by Persia. They have an obligation, right, to pay these that are certainly heavy taxes that they're paying. But the issue isn't just those taxes. Now that there's this famine, now that there's this difficult economic crisis they're facing, they've had to borrow to pay those taxes. They had to turn to their wealthier Jewish brothers for loans. But that interest rate was really high. And if you're going to take out a loan like that, you better be able to pay. But they weren't. The famine was so severe, it didn't let up, and now they have no hope as well. So they've begun to do something unimaginable. They're selling their sons and daughters into slavery. What would it take for you to sell your children into slavery? How bad might the situation have to be? Well, there might be times where I might want to give one or two of my children away, and there might be times where I might pay someone to take some of my children away, but what would it look like to actually have to sell your children into slavery? How destitute and desperate might you have to be to do that? This is a strange thing for us, but in, in the ancient Near East, this was kind of like the last line of defense to hopefully save your family. It was the last resort when you faced economic hardship. If you couldn't pay a debt, you could give one or more of your children into servitude, into slavery for a, a period of time so that you could raise enough money to maybe pay off your debt and redeem them back, or maybe they would work long enough to pay the debt themselves. And these people, they'd hoped that this indentured servitude would, would be temporary, that they would be able to redeem their sons and daughters back, but they can't because they've lost everything. They've already mortgaged their land and their property. So the common Jewish people are starving. The, even the small landowners are mortgaging their property to buy food, and some of them are even selling their children into slavery. These are extreme economic hardships that they're facing. They're threatening the building of the wall, right? It's all stopped because of this. But the long-term security of the Jewish people is at stake as well. Their unity as a people, their existence is really at stake. So they bring these injustices to Nehemiah. They cry out to him for help. So how will Nehemiah respond when he hears about injustice among God's people? Well, Nehemiah demonstrates three appropriate responses to injustice. We'll pick back up in verse 6. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. First, he responds with anger. He sees suffering and oppression being done to these vulnerable people, and he gets angry. And that's important for us to, to, to dwell on because most of the time, our anger is sinful. Most of the time, the reasons we get angry is, is about ourselves and about being inconvenienced or our selfishness. But sometimes, there is a thing called righteous anger. Nehemiah heard of injustice being done, and he has this righteous anger in response. So how can we tell the difference between sinful anger that so often is in our hearts and righteous anger? Well, righteous anger is a response to actual sin. It's always a response to actual sin, not wounded pride or personal preference or inconvenience. Sinful anger might look like getting mad when your kid spills a glass of milk at the, at the dinner table. That's an inconvenience. That's why I get mad. That's sinful anger. But getting angry when your child hits his sister for no reason, that's a reason to get angry. 
There's injustice being done. But anger is righteous also when it's focused primarily on God and his kingdom, not on self and our own kingdom. When the focus is on how they violated God's law, not just what I prefer. So an example of this could be when your child disrespects you. Not that it ever happens in my house. This is hypothetical. Are you angry because you're embarrassed? You worry about how other people think you are as a parent, and so you get angry at that. Or is your anger driven by a concern that your child is disregard for God's law, to, for God's command to honor his father and mother? Anger is also righteous when it's controlled. It's not an outburst. It's not an explosion of rage. It's not meant to inflict harm. But it also doesn't try to harm by being passive-aggressive. It's wrong to be anger, angry and then ignore and withdraw from other people because of your anger. And righteous anger also seeks reconciliation, not retaliation or revenge. The goal is not to hurt, but to protect, to heal, and to help. And that's what we see with Nehemiah here in the process of what he's going to do. But we see that demonstrated by Jesus himself. In Mark chapter 3, we'll flip there real quick. If you have, if you have a Bible, you can flip there. Um, in Mark chapter 3, Jesus demonstrates the same righteous anger, the same righteous indignation that Nehemiah does here. Mark chapter 3, verse 1. And again, he entered the synagogue, this is Jesus, and there was a man who was there with a withered hand. And the Pharisees watched Jesus to see whether he might heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went away and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. Jesus knew what was in their heart, and he knew that they were using this crippled man for their own advantage to try to trap Jesus and try to use this situation for their own evil purchases to kill Jesus. Right? They're trying to ca catch him so that they can persecute him or, and, uh, and kill him. So Jesus is naturally angry at this, that they're using this crippled man and they're abusing the law of God for their own evil purposes. When was the last time that you were truly angry about injustice. Whether it's inside the church, like it's inside the people of God in our story, or whether it's outside the church. Because as God's people, all justice, all injustice is something that's an affront to God. All injustice offends God. And so it should us. We should not see injustice happening and turn a blind eye. We should, we should care that injustice is happening? Do we have that emotional response of anger like Nehemiah? But then notice that Nehemiah doesn't just stop with a feeling. Look what he does in verse 7. He says, I took counsel with myself. He takes time to carefully consider what he's supposed to do. He wants to appropriately and effectively respond to this injustice. So how can he resolve this conflict? What can he do to possibly rectify the situation? He wants to bring healing. He wants to bring reconciliation. So often we miss this step. We might get angry. We hear about something happening. We get angry about it. But we don't take time to think, what, what might God be calling me to do? 
When I hear about how there are failing schools and there are kids who are in fourth, fifth, sixth grade who can't read, who can't do math because we have an educational system that struggles to educate sometimes. There are complex issues involved and we think, oh, ah, that makes me mad, but I can't do anything. Or do we think through how we individually or corporately as a body could help address needs like that in our community? There's a, a family um, at the church that we uh, just moved here from that uh, they were older, they, their kids had already left the home, they were empty nesters, nesters and they thought, what can we do? They knew that there were, in, especially in Chattanooga, there are very stark contrasts between uh, the educational system of the public school and private schools there. And so they thought, we want to do something about it. So 10 years ago, they started to serve at one of these failing local elementary schools. They went once a week for an hour and read to three children there. They met with two boys and a girl for an hour each week and would just read with them, help them study, help them learn. And over time, they got to, to know these, these kids and they got to know their family situations. All three came from broken families. One lived with his grandmother. One had a brother who was in a gang and in jail. So the Hills, when they discovered this, they, they offered to take these kids several days after school. So they would, they would help them study, to help them get their work done, and they would make sure they had a good meal. When these kids, when these kids reached middle school, they contacted the local Christian school. They said, is there anything we can do? Is there a scholarship that's available? And so they got them a scholarship to this Christian school, and then they paid the rest with the tuition. When one of the boys, his family situation was really tough. They took him in and he lived with them for two years. They brought these kids to our church, to our youth group. They brought them to Sunday school. They got to hear the gospel. And now two of these boys are in college. One of them is about to graduate high school this year. This girl is about to graduate from high school. And it's because the Hills saw injustice in their community. They saw something that was going on. They thought, they considered carefully what they could do to help. And they transform the lives of these kids. So maybe for us, it starts with just an hour a week reading with kids. So what does Nehemiah do? He carefully considers how to respond, and he confronts. This is probably one of the hardest things. Look at verses 7 and 8. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and officials. And I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. And I said to them, We, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they might be sold to us. And they were silent, and they could not find a word to say. He became angry. He considers carefully what to do, but then he confronts them. These are powerful people that Nehemiah is addressing. They're influential. They're wealthy. If you think about this building project of the walls, right? There were people who built the section right across from their house. But he's confronting the people who built that, like, thousand-cubit span, right? These are people he needs to be on board with the rebuilding project. He needs their support and their backing. So he could have, you know, kind of tiptoed about it, say, hey, guys, it's not that bad. Here's a little grain. Here, we'll take care of you a little bit. He could sweep it under the carpet a little bit. But instead, no, he confronts them over their injustice, and he brings these two charges against them. They're exacting interest from their brothers. Jews could loan money 
at interest to the foreigners. Jews could loan money to their fellow Jews, but they were forbidden from charging interest on those loans to their fellow Jews. Deuteronomy 23, 19 says, You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest. And then in Exodus 20, 20, or 22, 25, especially to the poor, he says, If you lend money to any of my people with, whom, uh, with you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. This is exactly what they're doing, right? They're breaking God's direct commandments on how to love their brothers who are in need. And then they're selling them into slavery. Apparently, Nehemiah had been personally involved in finding Jews who were sold into slavery, purchasing them back, redeeming them, helping them come back to the promised land. But these rich Jewish landowners were then selling these children who were sold into slavery and then selling them off to foreigners again. So you can imagine Nehemiah's outrage, right? They're, they're reversing all that Nehemiah's trying to be doing here, right? He's trying to bring them back, but they're sending them off again. But the issue is that they're doing this to their brothers. These are people they're in covenant relationship with, right? They have a covenant relationship with God, but that puts them in a covenant relationship with one another. They're not just countrymen or neighbors. No, they're family, there's a certain amount of respect and responsibility that you owe any person, all people, but to your brother, to your sister. And in charging interest and enslaving their fellow Jews, they were exploiting the poor rather than showing them love and care as brothers. We as Christians need to care about injustice within the church, and we need to care about injustice outside of the church and the world as well. Christ extended the command to love, right? Not just to our, our neighbors, not just to our brothers, but he says, be a neighbor to everyone. We should pursue justice for all. So then Nehemiah exposes the root of injustice. We'll quickly cover the last two points, verses 9 through 11. So I said, the thing you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money and grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. He exposes the root of the problem, right? It's not just that they're lending with interest, right? It's that they're self-interested. They're only focused on themselves. They don't care what God has said. They don't care about God, and they don't care about their brothers, but Nehemiah is holding out hope that they're going to respond to this, to this charge, right? He, he's hoping that they will reform their ways. They'll be received back into the fellowship of God's people. And he, he refers to Leviticus 25, the passage that we read earlier, but he says, Take no interest or profit from the poor, but fear your God, that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan to be your God. You should catch that. They're, they're supposed to treat their brothers well because they fear God. But they're not fearing God. They've forgotten who he is. They should remember that God sees and hears and knows the oppression that's happening to his people. And they should also remember how God treated them. That God saw them when they were slaves in Egypt and had mercy on them. That he provided food for them when they were in the wilderness. That he provided land for them. Land that was flowing with milk and honey. 
They are supposed to reflect God's kindness, God's mercy, God's love and generosity and compassion. And that's how we're supposed to live with one another. We're supposed to reflect God, His mercy. So they're exacting interest out of self-interest. On paper, it made sense that they're going to buy low and sell high, right? They're just trying to flip these properties, make as much money as possible. But what they're doing is exploiting the poor, the needy around them so that they could benefit financially. This is the idol of self. This is the idol behind all sin that we do. We put ourselves in front of God and in front of others. So the result was that they were nullifying their witness to the world around them. The existence of the nation was to be a blessing. The existence of the nation of Israel was to be a blessing to the nations around them, that they would know God and see him and want to be part of that. But who would believe that Yahweh, their Lord, their God, was a God of justice, mercy, compassion, when his people were treating one another like that. They would just be a ridicule, a mock to the people around them. Jesus said, people will know that we are his disciples by how we love one another. So in a, a great, the great passage in Philippians 2 about unity within the church, Paul says this. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul is realistic. It's okay to be concerned about your own interests, to think, oh, I need enough food to eat. I need to have a place to live. I need to be nourished and taken care of. But he says we should not only look to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. How can we look to the interests of others? What do they need? How can I even care for my brother this way? Well, the way that we can do this is we look to the example of Christ. Christ is the one that Paul is going to show us. He's the one who had interest for others and not himself. He became poor so that we might be rich. He, the righteous, became unrighteous for us. He took our unrighteousness so that we could be right with God. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is why Jesus came. He came to demonstrate justice and mercy so that people could be saved, that he could redeem a people for himself. And so what's great about this story is the people respond. They don't, they don't respond like the Pharisees and seek to kill Nehemiah after this. No, they respond with repentance. They, they're silent when Nehemiah brings these charges against them. If you saw in verses 12, uh, 11 through 12, they actually restore what they've taken. It reminds me of, of Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus gave half of everything he had to the poor and then four times fold if he ever wronged somebody. That's what these people do. They give back immediately the land that they've taken, the vineyards, the, the homes, and they stop, stop taking money at interest. Restoration is a mark of true repentance, restoring as much as possible to those you've wronged. And finally, there's accountability in this repentance. This is it's funny. He brings in the priests, and they have to swear to the priests. And then he shakes out his garment and says, if you break this promise, God's going to shake you out of the people of God. You're going to be excluded from the people of God. Because when there's injustice within God's people, among God's people, it hinders the work of God's people. So let's look to Christ. How can we do this? Well, Christ is our example. But then Paul says in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This mindset that Jesus demonstrated, it's not just an example for us, but it's actually yours in Christ Jesus. The mindset of looking to the interests of others. 
It's the mindset we have because God is at work in us. He is making us like Christ. He is growing a heart of mercy and justice within us that confronts injustice and that repents of our own injustice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text that speaks across generations and centuries to our hearts and calls us to action, calls us to be brave and stand against injustice, It calls us to repent of our own complicity and injustice at times. Lord, help us to follow Christ, to be transformed, to be renewed by him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.